The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning, this is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. I'm joined by Marilyn Stern, MEF's Communications Coordinator and Producer for our program. Not in studio today is Gary Gamble, who is still on leave, but he will be joining us perhaps next week, perhaps the week after next, but he is still dearly missed. And with the news at the top of the hour, I wanted to get in with our opening segment into something that's been developing on Twitter for the past 36 hours. And that is a story that comes out of both Florida... Toronto, Ontario, Canada, London, England, Australia, and the nation state of Qatar in Doha. And this all has to do with a potential conspiracy theory, a half-truth, perhaps an exaggerated circumstance of evidence which has been coming out, but I must address a controversy surrounding the allegations directed against U.S. House Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota's 1st District and the allegations which are now being put out in a court affidavit, excuse me, not a court affidavit, a deposition which was taken last month with an individual named Alan Bender in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Bender being a former fixer, alleged fixer for both the Saudi and the Qatari governments and also the Emiratis somewhat, a man named Abdullah Al-Sallah who is another individual who was allegedly involved in this story. And it all surrounds an alleged assassination plot where a member of the Qatari royal family asked his personal bodyguard to go after someone he was disappointed with in either Arizona or in California. But it is one crazy story. Now, to start everything off, we have to give a little bit of background on exactly what it is that we're speaking about. Many times on this program, we bring up Qatari influence operations in the United States and their larger foreign influence objectives writ large. The Qatari foreign policy is to play two sides of the same coin against one another, whether it's Sunni versus Shia, Republican versus Democrat, minority group versus other minority group, or even finding ways to create fissures and cleavages between major geopolitical problems. So first, let's look at what Qatar has done in the past two years, or at least three years now, since the Trump administration has come into power. They were able to court conservative American Jewish leadership to go to Qatar in January of 2017, and, and excuse me, January of 2018. We're talking about the Zionist Organization of America's president, Mort Klein. We're talking about former Arkansas's governor, not a member of the American Jewish community, but a definitely a uh, Ahavat Israel, of Etzion, someone who loves the state of Israel, Mike Huckabee, Alan Dershowitz, who was allegedly the signatory of a contract with an American Jewish lobbyist, Joey Alaham, so on and so forth. And what the Qataris did is they used these individuals and the influence that these individuals catered, paid some of them massive sums of money, not the case of Klein. His organization got funds, not him. But Alaham was part of a $7 million lobbying contract through a group called Stonington Strategies with one specific goal, 
to end H.R. 2712, a key piece of House legislation which has now made its way through in a watered-down version in this version of this Congress, but in the last Congress, H.R. 2712 was a key anti-terrorism legislation that would have held the Qataris and the Turks and any other sponsors of Palestinian terrorism accountable under the U.S. justice system. That bill was killed. DOA, dead on arrival after this Qatari influence operation targeted it. A similar Qatari influence operation, this time albeit not using American Jewish community leadership, was able to water it down with a bill passed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, now under the auspices of Elliot Engel, Democrat from New York, and his ranking member, who were all involved in this, and now it's sitting in the Senate. More news on that later. Other Qatari operations in the United States in the last three years have also involved major bailouts of American companies, media purchases, trying to put the pulse on investments in state sovereignty funds, like Qatari promises for investment in South Carolina. Great way to get Lindsey Graham on your side. Other ways to invest in California, Michigan, and even a $1.4 billion bailout of a major Manhattan skyscraper affiliated with the Kushner family. That is Jared Kushner. But all of these investigations that came out about Qatari influence in the United States never got to the level of the allegations which were brought up in this deposition which took place a month ago. The main allegation being that Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman from Minnesota, is a Qatari asset in the U.S. Congress. Now, looking at this at face value, I'm inclined to say I'm not one to believe these accusations. I know that uh, we, we ran an article yesterday on the ME Forum website, which essentially said if this is true, the FBI should investigate it. We didn't put any solidity or any clarity or any crystallization into the investigative process itself. We ran an article which was describing the situation, much like many other websites did. The Jerusalem Post covered this. The Daily Caller covered this, albeit on the other side of saying that this may not have been true. But we did run an article on our Islamist Watch project and also on the Middle East Forum's website. But now it's time to analyze these accusations and to look at them, not just at their face value, but to dig deeper. So we have this man, Alan Bender, deposed by a lawyer from Florida who's involved in this separate case, which and I actually don't understand what Ilhan Omar has to do with a Qatari assassination plot in Southern California, but we'll try to figure that out later in a little bit of analysis. But in all seriousness, this lawyer goes to Canada. She interviews this man, Alan Bender, and we first have to ask ourselves, who is Alan Bender? How did he get this explosive information, which is the basis of these allegations? And even beyond that, how is he connected to this whole plot of assassination attempts and murder for hire and the Qatari royal family? And he's in Canada of all places, pretty docile place. But in all seriousness, Alan Bender gives... 200 pages of testimony on every single element of the Qatari influence machine, not just in the United States, not just in Canada, but throughout the rest of the world. His background does not lend much 
juxtaposition on what his otherwise factors for influence would be involved in. Number one, there's a picture of him with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a celebration for the recent Liberal Party's victory in the Canadian parliamentary elections. He's right there with the Prime Minister. So he does have some sort of access. Where does it come from? We, we don't necessarily know. Beyond that, we then see he finds himself, and his history at least, being someone who was himself an asset or a fixer or interlocutor between Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, albeit all of this justification, all of these uh, you know, background on his CV uh, has to do with what he says is his self-described way in which he, he, he sees himself. But we can't actually bring any bona fides. He's not carrying his resume with him in his back left-hand pocket saying, yes, I am Alan Bender. I am the fixer, the Canadian fixer, born in Kuwait, had my law degree in Damascus, Syria, came to Canada, don't really explain how I did that, but now I am the fixer for the Arab world. And then he lays out these explosive allegations in this testimony. And apparently, these allegations had been shopped around for the past year. It really has nothing to do with this lawsuit. I think what happened is, is that Bender somehow either concocted this himself, he's on someone else's payroll, but he starts handing out these different items, the most explosive being that regarding Ilhan Omar. But the end of this, besides him having uh, some Kuwaiti economist in London who's backing him up, and other members of the Twitterati who are coming forward saying, yes, this must be true, and then other people on the other side saying, look, we've been doing some serious work on Qatar and on investigating Ilhan Omar. There's plenty of bad stuff out there. This is not one of those items. This is, if, if anything, is more likely to be a lie, a rumor, a tissue of omissions, rather than something which can actually be backed up by evidence. So at the end of this analysis in these first 10 minutes of this program, I call upon the lawyer in Florida. I call upon the plaintiffs that she represents. I ask Bender and Abdul al-Salah and anyone else, including this uh, imam of Peace Imam Tawhidi in uh, Australia, who, who we've actually been able to help out with some legal assistance in the past, but everyone is putting these alleged facts online. I want to see hard evidence. I want to see the truth. I want to see documents. I want to see recordings. I want to be able to view videos. We need to get to the bottom of this because if this ends up being one large nothing burger, it only hurts efforts to stamp out Qatari influence operations in this country and hold that nation state that supports terrorism to account. After these messages, E.J. Kimball. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. 
Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm joined by Marilyn Stern, MEF's communications coordinator and producer for Middle East Forum Radio in studio. And on our other line is E.J. Kimball, the director of the Forum's Israel Victory Project, responsible for our foreign affairs portfolio in Washington, D.C., and all-around foreign policy expert. E.J., good morning. Morning, Greg. Good to be on with you. What is your least favorite Thanksgiving food? Green bean casserole. Tell me about it, right? I wish there was some yeah. kind of kosher like prohibition against green beans or just casserole in general, but we have our own word for it, kugel. So, you know, it doesn't really help us out. But, but in other serious news, besides the pardoning of the Thanksgiving turkey by President Trump expected later today, what is hopping in Washington, D.C. as it pertains, and this is really what I want to get into, the peace process? Well, at the moment, not a whole lot. Um, you know, there's, we had over the summer the, uh, the sort of unveiling of this economic uh, portion of this peace plan or vision uh, in Bahrain, uh, but the more political side, which had been expected to come out, has sort of been put on a permanent hold uh, in part until the Israeli political uh, situation works itself out with a new government being formed. But most recently, which is interesting, is that the sort of architect of this plan, Jared Kushner, uh, seems to have been reassigned focus uh, towards implementing and building a wall on the southern border. Do you think he learned from the uh, West Bank uh, separation barrier to get some lessons? Well, perhaps that was really what was going on. Uh, I say that in jest. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the situation from what I'm understanding is um, there, it may be it, timing is all relative as to what is considered soon, but there are some discussions that it may not come out until sometime in the spring next year when perhaps there's a presumptive Democratic nominee and the president may be looking to differentiate himself from that nominee on the Israel issue, as we've seen uh, already with some of the positions taken by some of these candidates. Yeah, I would advise the president, don't introduce a peace plan in an election year. That's always, uh, I mean, actually, if we go back to 96 in Y River, yeah, yeah, a pretty eventful year. You have the assassination of Rabin in November of '95. You have the election of Netanyahu in '96, and then Clinton puts the spurs on him right after he becomes prime minister. I mean, if look, I'm not trying to to, to put a pox on anyone's house, okay? 
But if we look at similar events where there was a question in Israeli leadership, Shimon Peres gets in as acting prime minister. Two months later, after the Rabin assassination, he launches Operation Grapes of Wrath, which is a effort to reduce Hezbollah's presence in southern Lebanon after a series and spate of attacks taken out against Israeli troops on the Lebanese. Uh, at that, that time, it was the Lebanese Lebanese safe zone, right? It's where the SLA, Saad Haddad, was in power and, and Antoine Lahoud. Um, from the Southern Lebanese Army, allying with Israel. But we're in sort of a similar security situation from 23 years ago. I mean, now it would be 24 years ago. You have uncertainty in Israel's political leadership. We have an election, which is coming down the pike, which is going to be in March of 2020, just like there was the election in March of 96. Marilyn, if you can help me out, get the exact date for when that took place, because I want to try to draw a parallel here. And then... You have a peace process, which is initiated by Clinton in 96. That's how Gaza, uh, Hebron 2, I think, happens. I mean, the similarities are a little bit scary. But this time, it's a Republican president. Some consider him to be the most pro-Israel president ever. What can happen? Well, you know, this is, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting situation in Israel. And I think that there's a lot of, misunderstanding, uh, especially here among the American Jewish uh, population, because if you look at the Israeli electorate, if you, you know, look at these elections that they've been having, and if you remove the Arab vote from it, you see quite a, a striking result, which is the Israeli Jewish population is voting about 60-40 for a right-wing government. Um, you know, and that's been, you know, consistent over these two elections. I mean, if you look at the United States, the last time we had a presidential election that went with those types of numbers, that was Reagan versus Mondale. You know, that, that's the type of stuff we're talking about. You know, when we look at President Trump and Hillary Clinton or President Obama and Mitt Romney or, or John McCain, those numbers, you know, these are very close elections. We're a very divided country. Um, but in Israel, it's actually not such a divided country when you look at the Israeli Jewish population. So, you know, looking at where the Israeli public is, especially on the issue of uh, how to address the conflict, as our polls have shown on the Israel Victory Project, there's overwhelming support for victory. Uh, it's not the way that it's described here in the United States. Policy in Israel, whether it's uh, Bibi or Gantz or another Likud leader, um, policy in Israel is not going to be so dramatically different as is being anticipated here in the United States. And I think that's something that's just very important for people to understand. So I need to correct myself. It wasn't the White River process. It was the Hebron Agreement that was negotiated in the beginning of 1997. Uh, but the lead up to that was a similar era of uncertitude when Netanyahu was elected in May of '96. And then there was another seven months which followed, six months if we consider the U.S. presidential election when Bob Dole went off against Bill Clinton. But I think that, look, I know what you're trying to say is is, is that the Israeli political map is not going to change. Uh, yet, with a 60-40 split, how can they not accomplish a government? The formulation well, of a government. 
Well, and well, that's the difference between a U.S. system versus a, a parliamentary system, a two-party versus parliamentary. There's you mean a like, lot a, more like a forty-two-party system? Well, exactly. When you've got you know ten different parties with seats that are negotiating for a coalition, you may have sixty percent that support a certain initiative, but uh, you know you've got to satisfy certain conditions, and that's obviously. Obviously, the the issue going on in Israel right now. Well, I think it's actually something which is a lot more deeper, and, and this is something that Americans have to understand. That yes, the two countries are aligned, and there was a speech that was made by Ron Dermer last week at the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs annual dinner, where he said that not just himself, not just the Prime Minister, but the Chief of Staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, some senior ministers in Israel and others are all in favor of a mutual defense treaty between the United States and Israel. Now, that's what Americans are familiar with, the defense cooperation, where Israel's greatest ally, Israel is the United States' greatest ally in the region, whatever else. But when you start focusing on domestic issues like religion and state, like the price of butter, I mean, did you realize that there is a butter shortage in Israel right now? And, and that might actually become an election issue? You had 3,800 tons of butter, which were produced by Tanuva, Israel's largest dairy manufacturer last year. This time, 1,800. And now they're talking about quotas for the import of foreign goods, all these other things. People forget that Israel itself is a regular, everyday country. They have their own domestic issues. They have their own plights. They have their own allegations of corruption. They have their own special interests. Everything that the United States has. But when people try to get mired down into it, a country of 8 million, 9 million people, can sometimes seem more complicated than a country like the United States of 340 million people. So when I'm looking at what's going on in Israel right now and, and you know, victory, whatever else, let's go beyond that for a second. What should a listener of this program be paying attention to as a weather vane or as a barometer for the future of U.S.-Israel relations, let's say in the next six months? Well, I think it's the messages that we're seeing come out of this administration. It's the the messages to Israel that the United States is supportive of Israel taking bold action if that's what Israel decides is in its best interest. Yeah, the the steps that this administration has taken already has sent that message to Israel. It's done that on the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, the recognition of Jerusalem, the cutting off of aid to UNRWA. Uh, it's given Israel, you know, the, it has not pulled Israel back from engaging with Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Uh, they have not put the, you know, put the brakes on Israeli actions. Israel has seemingly made those decisions themselves without the outside pressure. I think that's what we need to be looking at. Is there any sign of a shift of a uh, more, um, uh, controlling approach from the United States that we should be dictating to Israel what to do. And at the moment, up until now, for the past, you know, nearly three years, the uh, the U.S. administration under President Trump has not engaged in the type of activity that President Obama did. So let's, let's get away from Israel for a second and focus on some domestic issues and how it's affecting American foreign policy, specifically in the Middle East. How are Middle Eastern regimes looking at this impeachment process, which is going on on the Capitol? Well, they're, they're looking at this and saying, number one, President Trump could be removed. Uh, you know, the, 
the reality right now, barring some unforeseen testimony that uh, is being held very tightly, the House may or may not vote to send articles of impeachment to the Senate. But even if they do, the Senate's going to uh, to acquit the president. So it's an exercise that will lead to the continuation of, of the president serving in office. The way that that's viewed overseas is the president is very weak. He's distracted by these internal uh, investigations by the Congress and potentially could be removed from office, which means that countries are not going to take the United States seriously when we're we're uh, seeking certain policy changes. Um, depending on what we're looking to do on Iran and with the coalition of Arab states, working with Israel uh, to push back against Iranian expansionism and, and their brutal dictatorship, uh, you know, how we're dealing with Turkey, uh, Qatar and, and others, and North Korea, these issues that we've been dealing with for the past three years under President Trump have seemingly taken big steps back because there's just no faith that President Trump will weather this storm and he's lost a lot of his influence. So this has been very damaging to our foreign policy standing. And the question now is how assertive can the president be and how soon can he put this behind him so that these countries understand that he's not going anywhere, at least over the next year. So we look at impeachment weakening the president, but there's also been a very large discussion now pivoting back towards Israel about the entry of a new candidate into the Democratic primary foray, into the, into the scrum of the uh, Democratic primary candidates, that being Michael Bloomberg, uh, CEO, founder of Bloomberg News, American billionaire, and former mayor of New York City. What's the Israel conversation like now over on the Democratic side? Well, the the Israel issue on the Democratic side has certainly turned a bit more hostile, as we've seen from Bernie Sanders, from Elizabeth Warren, and even Pete Buttigieg, uh, three of, I guess, the top four polling candidates. Um, former Vice President Biden's position has been you know, a little more nuanced, uh, as he's historically been a supporter of Israel. But the party is certainly moving into a pro-BDS platform. And, you know, with Michael Bloomberg entering the race, I think he'll he'll inject back into that pro-Israel Democrat. So let's, let's, I want to stop you there for a second. You're saying that the Democratic Party is becoming a party that endorses BDS? Uh, elements within the party have been pushing for that inclusion of a pro-BDS platform. And in fact, uh, but does that mean it's actually going to be passed? In the 2020 platform? There's the 2020 the policy Democratic platform. National. It'll be at the DNC okay. convention. Will BDS be part of that platform? I think there is a very, very high likelihood that it will be. It almost happened in 2016 before uh, Hillary Clinton and her, her people were able to put a stop to it. It was very close. But I think in 2020 depending on how things go with their primary, which looks like they, there may have to be a brokered convention, meaning no one on the first ballot will have enough delegates. If that's the case, I think you are going to see a higher likelihood of BDS becoming part of their platform. Okay, but I, I do now remember... I do remember, mean, yeah. Yeah. I do remember 2016, and I 
take exception, I take exception with your characterization that BDS was almost part of the platform. There was a well-orchestrated effort by the National Jewish Democratic Council and its former CEO, Aaron Kiak, who you and I both know, to uh, not have that be included. Now, I'm not standing here as some Democrat or some Republican saying that, but I think that we have to give a little bit of liberty to our uh, few remaining Democratic friends that may still harbor uh, pro-Israel sentiments and to doubt that they may have plans in their back pocket, that they don't have plans in their back pocket to try to prevent the Democratic Party's national foreign policy policy platform uh, for including BDS. I hope that we're not on the path to the Corbynization of the Democratic Party. I'm trying to give just a little bit of solace and a little bit of hope for them. Yes, I, I, I'm not saying that every Democrat is turned anti-Israel, but there is a very loud and vocal element within the Democratic Party which is pushing for this agenda change. And you are correct that they were able, you know, there was a plan put in place to stop this from happening, and it did, thankfully. Um, it is also important to note that a policy platform at the convention does not mean that the candidate for president has to follow everything. It's it's more symbolic than it is policy, uh, as it has turned today, but it is a growing movement within the Democratic Party, and that's why we're seeing uh, this divide within the party over the pro-Israel elements and the anti-Israel elements, and then sort of people in between that aren't really sure which way to go. It's, it's, a, it's a very serious issue, which thankfully there are strong supporters within the Democratic Party for a strong U.S.-Israel relationship that are pushing back. I hope that it does not happen in 2020. However, I think that it is higher likelihood, certainly in 2020, than it was in 2016 when it was able to be thwarted. EJ, you have a conference you are planning in Washington for December 9th. Can you tell us a little bit about it and uh, how to register? Sure. Um, the, uh, the conference is dealing with the issue of Turkey in uh, U.S.-Turkey relationship and what our policy should be, looking at Turkey today as it is. You know, historically, Turkey was an ally of the United States, but recently, over the last decade, it has continuously moved away from that, that relationship. And now what we're seeing is a Turkey that is acting in a hostile, um, in a hostile way towards the United States and the conventional wisdom is we should be doing everything in our power to try to keep Turkey within our orbit. And the reality is that Turkey has moved out of our orbit. And if that is true, that Turkey cannot be brought back into our orbit, we need to be looking at policies and how to deal with Turkey over the next year, 10 years, 20 years. So we were holding this conference to discuss these big policy issues and how the Erdogan regime is dealing with its neighbors, the Cypriots, the Armenians, uh, the Kurds, uh, the various different Kurdish populations. So we're going to be having this event here in Washington, D.C. on December 9th. And uh, um, registration can be done through the MEF website. Um, I think you have uh, the specific uh, Forum, there. slash activities slash events, and you'll see EJ's event. Is Turkey coming back, updating U.S. policy? We'll be joined by the member of Congress, E.J. Kimball, Elon Berman. Excuse me, E.J. 
and Daniel Pipes along with other guest speakers. Uh, any final thoughts before we part ways? No, just uh, wish you a happy Thanksgiving and uh, you know, and enjoy the uh, enjoy the turkey. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. After these messages, we're back. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman, joined in the studio by producer Marilyn Stern, and not with us this week, but rejoining us will be Gary Gamble after he comes back from his short leave. In the headlines, Michael Levinson brings us the latest from Washington. Former Turkish Deputy Prime Minister Ali Babakan warned on Tuesday of the dangers of one-man rule and said he hopes to form a new political party by the end of the year to challenge President Tayyip Erdogan's ruling AKP. Baba Khan resigned, resigned from the AKP, that's the Justice and Development Party, or the AKP in Turkish, citing deep differences. A founding member of the Islamist-rooted party, he served as economy and then foreign minister before becoming deputy prime minister, a role he held from 2009 to 2015. Baba Khan and former Turkish president and AKP co-founder Abdullah Gul have long been rumored to be planning a rival party. Baba Khan said Gul would not be actively involved in the party, but was working as an advisor or big brother. It sounds like Erdogan has a second big brother to join him. Former Turkish Prime Minister Ahmed Davut Gulu also fell out with Erdogan in 2016 and criticized the AKP's economic policy. But Baba Khan ruled out Davut Gulu joining his new party. This is all brought to you by David Discourse. Turkey is also aiming to have its indigenous fighter jet ready for flight in the next five to six years. President Tayyip Erdogan said on Tuesday, the statement from the Turkish president arrived as a dispute with Washington over the purchase of F-35 jets continues. The mock-up of Turkey's first indigenous fighter, the TFX, was unveiled this summer at the Paris Air Show. Turkish officials had said the aircraft being developed by Turkish aerospace engine manufacturer, Turkish Aerospace Industries, will be ready for 2023. 
Let's talk about procurement and arms procurement for a second, especially in the wake of Turkey now having to decide between either Russian munitions, Chinese munitions, European munitions, American munitions now being taken off the table because of sanctions or producing their own weaponry domestically. I'm reminded of the 1980s kerfuffle between the United States government under Reagan and the Israeli government under Menachem Begin with the production of the Levy fighter jet. This was at a time when the Israelis were considering producing their own domestic aircraft, which in many ways would have been superior to the F-15 Flying Eagle or to other American uh, aircraft which were being designed and implemented at that time to take on the newest version of the Russian MiGs. And God forbid the policy went under the thinking of the Reagan administration if the Israelis were able to develop a better fighter jet than the United States. In this case, I am highly suspicious of Turkish uh, manufacturing know-how in the realm of aerospace fighters. Now, they did have a certain part of the F-35 program being responsible for perhaps manufacturing a wing or an engine. I forget the specifics of it. But the idea that Turkey will be able to manufacture their own fighter jet from cradle to great production in the next five to six years is a complete misnomer. Look how long it takes for the United States to get a fighter jet off the ground from conception to the point of mass production. 20, 30 years for the F-35 program? The F-22 ended up going way outside of its production costs. And if there is any Turkish desire to be able to design something that will even come close to the capabilities of the F-35, it will take, in my estimate, more than a decade. And even if they try to do it, by the time they have that first one rolling off the manufacturing line, we're right now, in terms of the evolution of fighter jets, we're at fifth generation fighters, stealth fighter jets. You will already have the United States, Russia, and China selling sixth generation fighter jets to Turkey's, not enemies, but their agitated uh, neighbors in the region. The Georgians will be getting advanced munitions. The Greeks will already have the F-35. The Israelis will have higher abilities to, to manufacture that. And if anything goes the way that the Iranians are planning for it, the United Nations embargo and ban on selling of advanced weaponry to the Iranians will end because of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action's expiration time, the Iran deal's ex expiration time of any weapon embargoes that's going against the Iranian government. So the Turks, again, will be on the wrong side of history because of their misbehavior towards the United States and their continued aggression against American allies in the region. Moving on to Syria. A car bomb killed 17 people near a Syrian border town seized by Turkish-backed forces last month. Turkey's defense ministry said on Tuesday in an attack that it blamed on Syrian Kurdish YPG fighters that the bomb struck Tel Halef village, west of the town of Ras Ain, which saw some of the heaviest fighting when Ankara launched a military offensive in the area against the YPG, the Kurdish military outfit, last month. Now, this is exactly what Daniel Pipes, the president and founder of the Middle East Forum, was talking about when he said, quite presciently, in, in, in a recent interview and also in some of his social media postings, that... An action like this, a car bomb killing 17 people close to the Turkish border, may be the start of Turkey's Vietnam in northeast Syria, or Rojava, as it's known for those who are, are Kurd files like myself. The Turks are inviting 
mayhem, destruction, and asymmetrical low-intensity conflict against their forces. This is the whole reason why it wasn't actually Turkish forces that led the advance and the charge into Syria. It was Syrian Arabs who were more interested in committing war crimes against Kurdish civilians and assassinating Kurdish politicians than the actual Turkish army who may have a modicum of understanding how a modern army has to fight and treat those in which it occupies. But this is what Erdogan's government and his military gets for unlawfully invading what was up until a month ago an American protector in northeast Syria. Car bombs. I can just imagine what's going to happen with further attacks against this illegal occupation on Kurdish territory. In Lebanon, Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Saad, excuse me, in Lebanon, Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Saad Hariri said Tuesday he would withdraw his candidacy for the premiership. Hariri had announced his resignation from the post on October 29th in response to nearly two weeks of widespread protests over government corruption and economic crises. But President Michel Aoun asked him to stay on in a caretaker capacity until various parliamentary bloc's heads had chosen a new prime minister. He tweeted that a techno-political government of specialists is needed to handle the severe economic crisis. The announcement comes after the second night of clashes in Beirut, where supporters of Hariri's Sunni-led future movement confronted supporters of Shia, Hezbollah, and Amal. A video posted online showed gunfire broke out. Police and soldiers separated the groups from confronting each other, and no injuries were reported. God forbid if we have another Lebanese civil war. It took 15 years to end that conflict from 1975 to 1990 with the Taif Accords. I cannot imagine what modern weaponry will bring to another internecine conflict between Lebanese brethren. In Yemen, the Saudi-led military condition coalition said on Tuesday that it had released 200 Houthi prisoners to support peace efforts aimed at ending the nearly five-year war in that country. The Western-backed coalition also said in a statement carried on Saudi state media that it would ease restrictions on Yemeni airspace to allow flights out of the Houthi-led capital, Sana'a, to transport people requiring medical treatment abroad. The Houthis had in September unilaterally released 350 prisoners, including three Saudis, after extending an offer to halt cross-border missile and drone strikes in Saudi Arabia if the coalition ended airstrikes on Yemen. Also in Yemen, coming out of the humanitarian sector, the International Committee of the Red Cross has reported a new outbreak of dengue fever in Yemen, with thousands of cases and several dozen deaths. In Haldeida, 50 people died in late October and early November of both the fever and malaria. The local head office reported the number of people infected with dengue fever was 2,000 and close to 3,000 had malaria. The European Commission's humanitarian aid operations, known as ECHO, or the European Coordinator for Humanitarian Aid, said 7,970 cases of dengue fever were reported in Thais, Yemen's third largest city, adding that 3,215 were confirmed and 103 patients were under observation in government hospitals. The thing about Thais is it's actually a Yemeni government-held city that's being sieged by the Houthis. There's all these um, reports coming out of Yemen that it's the Houthi-held territory that's being subject to a Saudi and Emirati-backed blockade. Let's not forget for one second that the Houthis are doing the exact same crimes in the south of the country in Yemeni government-backed territory. And the case of this medical malpractice, not saying that in the level of a personal hospital, but just the fact that it's a humanitarian crisis of uh, conditions, of diseases that were stamped out in the early 20th century 
shows how bad this situation can truly be. Not just in the humanitarian crisis facing Houthis, but also that facing the Yemeni government. In Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces launched airstrikes on terror targets in the Gaza Strip late Tuesday night in response to a rocket attack from the coastal enclave earlier in the evening, Palestinian media reported. Shortly after the air raids reportedly began, sirens sounded in the city of Ashkelon, sending tens of thousands of residents rushing to bomb shelters. The renewed fire came as a Qatari official said Monday aid money would be handed out on Wednesday to Gaza residents as part of an unofficial ceasefire agreement between Israel and the terror groups in the Strip. We have rocket fire on Tuesday and $20 million the next day. What better way to live your life in a coastal enclave where there's no palatable water, where depression rates are the highest in the Middle East, and where your leaders are more interested in launching rockets at civilians on the other side of the fence rather than taking care of your own domestic problems at home? Welcome to Gaza. Several thousand pro-Likud protesters took to the streets in Tel Aviv in support of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who faces legal proceedings in three corruption cases. The protest at the Tel Aviv Museum was scheduled following Netanyahu's indictment for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. The slogan of the demonstration, Let's Save the State from the Coup d'Etat, refers to a speech by Netanyahu after the indictment was made official when he decried the attempted coup against an acting prime minister. And lastly, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Monday called on Arab states to end their boycott of Israel and instead engage with the Jewish state. It's time for Arab countries to abandon boycotts and engage Israel, Pompeo tweeted. After these messages, we'll be back. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org. Or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman, your host, with Marilyn Stern, our producer, and Gary Gamble, who can't be joining us today. More headlines. Palestinian Authority News. Thousands of Palestinian protesters took part in a day of rage across the occupied West Bank. Now, that's not occupied. Let's call it the disputed territories of Judea and Samaria. That's maybe the proper nomenclature to use on this show. Um, or Jewish towns and villages, which are next to Palestinian towns, villages, and cities on the West Bank of the Jordan River. With some groups clashing with Israeli forces, the protest the U.S. announcement that it no longer believes Israeli settlements violate international law. Around 2,000 people gathered in the West Bank city of Ramallah by midday when they set ablaze posters of U.S. President Donald Trump, as well as Israeli and American flags. Now, these Palestinians are asking for hundreds of millions of dollars in American aid, yet their people decide to burn American flags and pictures of our president. It's a really good exchange rate that we're getting for helping the Palestinian people. A statement from Mahmoud Alul, an official with president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah movement, told the crowd in Ramallah, the biased American policy towards Israel and the American support of the Israeli settlements and the Israeli occupation leaves us with only one option, to go back to resistance. What does he mean? Suicide bombings, sniper attacks, 
ramming children off the road with Palestinian cars and all other forms of violence that Palestinian ingenuity can come up with. Instead of building their own state, their only goal is to destroy the other one they live next to, that of Israel. In Libya, senior U.S. officials met with Libyan National Army Commander Khalifa Haftar Monday to discuss steps towards ending the fighting in Tripoli and accused Russia of exploiting the conflict, the State Department said. The delegation, which included U.S. Ambassador to Libya Richard Norlin, aimed to establish steps to achieve a suspension of hostilities, the statement read. The officials underscored full American support for sovereignty and territorial integrity of Libya and expressed serious concern over Russia's exploitation of the conflict at the expense of the Libyan people, according to Arshak al-Aswat. Now, Marilyn, you may not realize what is going on in Libya right now. But it is much more than just the U.S. and the Russians trying to combat for influence between the General Assembly in Libya, which is in Tripoli. These are the Tripoli-backed forces. These are the guys who have Qatari money. They have Turkish military support. They have uh, Italian support because the Italians actually pay a bounty for every head that the Libyans do not allow to cross from Libya into Italian uh the uh, insular island uh, integral, uh, the insular integrity of the Italian country. So if you have one island, which is part of the European Union, and you get a Libyan who lands on that, or someone who's transiting through your Libyan territory to be taken by human smugglers from Tripoli to Italy, Italy has to absorb those people. So the Italians are actually paying the Libyans, saying, keep your migrants at bay. Now on the other side, you have the Haftar government, which is backed by the United Arab Emirates. It's backed by Egypt. It's backed by Saudi Arabia. It's backed by the United States. When there was this tit-for-tat um, attack, which was going back and forth with one another, between Haftar's forces, which are based in Benghazi, that's in the east of Libya, versus the Tripoli-based um, Lebanese uh, General Assembly, or, or the UN-recognized Libyan government, the... UN-recognized forces, backed by the Qatari money and Turkish military support, found American armaments, Javelin anti-tank missiles, probably provided by the CIA, which were found in Haftar's camp. So you have this whole mess of going on. It's, it's really a grand statement for an American ambassador to go see Haftar and then to accuse the Russians for interference. This is definitely a two-sided sword. Now, I myself have a certain amount of preference towards Haftar. He's secular. He is interested in fighting back against Islamists, especially those Islamists who are taking advantage of the Qatari and Turkish support in Tripoli. And he's got an overall good philosophy to be able to see what he wants to be able to do. But at the end of the day, he's running one mess of an army and military operation there. You have Haftar's forces which come in on pickup trucks and they are trying to invade and trying to get to a certain amount of time to get into Tripoli to kick out the forces there. And all of a sudden, Turkish drones piloted by Turkish pilots sitting in Malta, of all places, funded by the Qatari government, are then coming in over Haftar's forces and gradually taking out the columns which advance on Tripoli. And it's been the same tit-for-tat military back and forth for the past year. And there's been no movement whatsoever. So Libya, eight years after the downfall of Gaddafi, is still a cluster and mess of disproportionate warfare fighting. And, and, and just it's not even asymmetrical. It's incompetence which dictates the battlefield in that country. And because of that, I cannot imagine 
what the real conversation was between the American ambassador and Field Marshal Haftar. In Sudan, Sudan's cabinet Tuesday scrapped a controversial law that severely curtailed women's rights during the 30-year tenure of deposed autocrat Omar al-Bashir, state media reported. Thousands of women were flogged, fined, and jailed under the public order law for indecent and immoral acts. The official Sudan news agency reported, the Council of Ministers agreed in an extraordinary meeting uh, meeting today to cancel the public order law across all provinces. The cabinet's decision is still to be ratified by the ruling Sovereign Council, which is an 11-member joint civilian military body. Activists say the public order law was used as a weapon, with security forces regularly arresting women for attending private parties or wearing trousers. God forbid those trousers. Now, what this actually points to is the weakening of Islamist influence in Sudan. We remember the Janjaweed militia who used to take out in these raiding parties in Darfur, which led to the first genocide of the 21st century in that country. Actually, maybe Bosnia was the first, but or Kosovo, but the first Middle Eastern genocide which took place in the 21st century was in Darfur and in Sudan. Uh, the backbone of popular support for the Omar al-Bashir government was the Islamist parties that he was in alliance with. With the downfall of Bashir, the Islamists have lost influence. It's almost like Egypt is repeating itself all over again. And in Qatar, we already talked about that, this uh, story coming out of uh, Canada and Florida and wherever else. And lastly, and, and this is something that I, I'd like to touch on because it does have repercussions, not necessarily uh, as it deals with the Middle East, but I think a potential flow of emigres from one country outside the Middle East to Israel. The Archbishop of Canterbury has, in effect, backed the chief rabbi's comments on the labor leadership's record on anti-Semitism with a tweet highlighting the deep sense of insecurity and fear felt by many British Jews. The Archbishop, Justin Welby, does not explicitly refer to the Labor Party, but his intervention a few hours after the chief rabbi's excoriating public criticism of Jeremy Corbyn, the chairman of the Labor Party, is significant. In an article in the Times... Ephraim Mervis, Britain's most senior Jewish leader, accused Corbyn of allowing a poisoned sanction from the top to take root in the party, saying the way the labor leadership has dealt with anti-Jewish racism was incompatible with the British values of which we are so proud of dignity and respect for all people. Welby posted on Twitter that the chief rabbi should be compelled to make such an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented statement this time ought to alert us to the deep sense of insecurity and fear felt by many British Jews. They should be able to live in accordance with their beliefs and freely express their culture and faith. And this is the fate, just like when we began the conversation at the top of the hour, of minority groups in Europe. Whether it be Jewish, whether it be Kurds, whether it be other people who are supposed to be protected by Western liberal democracies. And we just had this conversation with E.J. Kimball. We see now on the left, there is a pernicious tilt towards hating the other at expense of those who you consider to be your voting bloc. When you look at this rainbow coalition, which comprised left-wing parties after the rise of social democracy in World War II, post-World War II, it was this idea that people were all together for one another, fighting against a higher, more autocratic class. Maybe the ruling elite, or maybe it was all of labor, those people who were part of the workers' movement. But there was never any deep-seated hatred racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism of the level which now affects Britain's Labour Party and may, 
If EJ's prognostications are correct, perhaps have its inklings in starting the seedlings of growth here in the United States Democratic Party. But where does this all come from? Where does it emanate from? How has Corbyn been able to get this far up until now? And how is it that he is on the precipice of taking over the world's oldest democracy at the same time partnering with the world's oldest form of hatred? And the way that this has come forth is because his alliances were not seen as being anti-democratic at the times because he was considered to be a whisper in a cacophony of democratic choral performances. When Corbyn went to meet with Palestinian terrorists in Tunis, when Corbyn called Hamas and Hezbollah his best friends, when he went to excuse members of his own party and saying that their affiliation with anti-Israel and then anti-Semitic elements was just a mistake, he got a pass. And that's why here in the United States today, Members of the Democratic Party or other, even in the Republican Party, who are starting to make the small reverberations of anti-Semitism must be cornered and brought out into the public square and verbally flogged now. The condemnation begins today, so we do not have Corbyn or its equivalent in the United States tomorrow. I'm Greg Roman. On Middle East Forum Radio here with Marilyn Stern, our program producer. Gary Gamble will be back in next week or the week after next. And to everyone who's eating that turkey, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>